Sunday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu opened his cabinet meeting with an announcement that his government will draft a decision to establish a new ministerial committee that he will head. In his remarks, Netanyahu stated, The fight against the cost of living tops our government's list of national priorities. We will take determined and strong action to lower prices in all areas. Our guest this week points out that this new Netanyahu-led committee is perhaps the fifth such task force the government has established to study the cost of living in the past decade. But she's ready to take on the fight. We can affect the cost of living. It is a imminently solvable problem. That's lawyer and people's lobbyist Rachel Gour. Today, the director of public policy for Lobby 99. She is an expert in the fields of Israeli legislation, regulation, and public policy. And like any good lobbyist, she knows how to walk the halls of power. From 2011 until a few years ago, Gur served in senior positions in the Israeli government. But what makes her lobbying for Lobby 99 different is that we, the people, set the agenda. This week, as the cost of living is again on the cabinet's agenda, I, Amanda Borshaldan, ask Rachel Gur, what matters now? Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today in the Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about something that is near and dear to really every single person's hearts here, and it is the cost of living. And this week, in fact, our Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, included in his cabinet meeting of the week a lot about the cost of living. So I ask you, Rachel, in this week, what matters now? What matters now is that we pay a lot of money for basic goods, food, toiletries, etc. And it doesn't have to be this way. The reason we're paying a lot of money is that there's a few people who are making a lot of money off of us. And really, the situation, it's, it's just, it's unnecessary. And perhaps the most important thing is that it's changeable. We can change the situation. Life here doesn't have to be as expensive as it currently is. 
Okay, so you are part of Lobby 99. And just uh, anecdotally, this week after the prime minister made his remarks uh, in our family, extended family WhatsApp group, uh, the patriarch uh, shared a video about the high cost of living here, very annoying as always. And one of his sons said, hey, everyone should join up to Lobby 99 because they're the only people in this country who are trying to do something about it. So explain to our listeners, first of all, what is Lobby 99? With pleasure. Lobby 99 is the public lobby. It was founded eight years ago based on the very simple principle that in order to push decisions through government, specifically decisions that affect economic policy, or to put it more simply, decisions that affect how much money we get, who gets the money, when they get the money, and how, uh, you need lobbyists. Lobbying today uh, is a very established profession. In the same way you need an attorney if you go to court, and if you open a business, you should have an accountant uh, on staff. So too. If the public, if the average citizen wants to affect how decisions are being made in the Knesset and in the government, they need a lobbyist. What's the problem? Lobbying is expensive. Lobbyists make a lot of money because they have very unique expertise. Not me, unfortunately, but commercial lobbyists. And uh, and therefore, the people or the organizations uh, that have the ability to retain the services of lobbyists are generally large corporations, big mega corporations. Specifically, we're talking about the cost of living. We're talking about big food conglomerate, right? Big food and toiletry conglomerates. And the public, although the public is, at least on paper, the largest interest group possible, right? The public is everybody. The public is uh, disparate, is disorganized, right? The public can't hire uh, people directly. And so I've been 2015, I actually joined in 2020, but in 2015, 2016, the idea started that if we could collect small amounts of money, if we could get a lot of people to give a little bit, then we could change that way uh, policy was made in Israel. And we could ensure that not only the tycoons or the large companies would have lobbyists and would have all the benefits the lobbyists give them, as in, you know, a kind of a backdoor to uh, to the members of Knesset and government, but the public would also have that same representation. And we started uh, with an initial uh, crowdfunding uh, project. It lasted for four months. It was successful. And from there, uh, we have grown uh, to an organization of 15 people. People, and we still uh, operate using that original model, and we are funded entirely by the public. We have, uh, as of this morning, 10,682 members, just average Israelis, people like me and you. The average uh, donation is 37 shekels, so we're not talking about a lot of money. A month. A month, a month, yeah. And in fact, you can donate uh, one time, but that doesn't buy you membership because much more important than the money is the buy-in, is the idea that I am representing you. When I go and talk to AMK, I am representing 10,000 people, 10,000 households here in Israel. And that, we are in a small country. That has a lot, a lot of power and a lot, a lot of sway. So at least four of those are my family members. We like that. Yes, that is important. And as I, and as I, and as I always say, in, in order to be a lobby, a member of the lobby, you just have to be an Israeli. You have to have a tudatzut in order to register. And, uh, and that's about it. Okay, so let's talk about all the things that make up my very, very average life. I have to say, of course, I may have a few more kids than other people, but we are not 
fancy folk. We're very simple Not big people. spenders. Not big spenders. We drive a 2003 Honda and a 2006 Toyota. We are not fancy people. But I've noticed in the past several years that my bills are just going up, 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 and up, especially at the grocery store, but not only. So let's take my very average life and tell me why this is happening Let's start with the grocery. I used to spend on average about 800 shekels a week. And now I can't walk out without spending at least 1,000, 1,100, 1,200. That is a drastic jump. What happened here? So first of all, we there are trends that are not, uh, you know, that are above and beyond the Israeli economy. Although, you know, we always like to believe we are the focus of the world. There are, there are, we must admit, global trends. And we are experiencing a, a global trend of inflation as well as a devaluation a, of the shekel. A, and so, yes, you know, those issues exist and those issues affect our bills on a, on a day, day-to-day basis. But I think what's more interesting, perhaps more pertinent to why it is expensive here, is the fact that the Israeli economy, or at least the Israeli grocery store, has a special magic. That's how I like to describe it. And it really doesn't matter what's going on in the world, right? The price of the freighters, of shipping food, they can go up, they can go down. The price of raw goods, okay, raw food substances, they can go up and go down. The value of the shekel can go up and go down. And somehow the prices here only move in one direction. They always go up, right? So if the global trend, uh, in parentheses, favors us, right? The shekel becomes stronger. Uh, the freight, the the freight, uh, the travel transport costs go down. Still, the prices here are high, and they always become higher. And the reason for that, in my opinion, in our opinion, as the lobby, is simply because there isn't enough competition in the food sector. And when I say food, I'm talking about not just food, but also toiletries, all the things that you buy, you know, at a supermarket or super farm or, you know, whatnot, that sort of store. And we actually, Israel is unique in many ways. One of the ways is that we have our food economy is considered the most Cuisine. Ah, I'm going to get stuck here. The most concentrated, forgive me. It's been a long time with English. It's considered the most concentrated in the Western world, which I, or to translate that into really just much simpler, we have the least amount of competition of any Western country. When it comes to the things you buy at the grocery store, uh, which are obviously very deeply tied to the cost of living, uh, there are about five or six companies, okay, who control about 45%, almost half of the food market here in Israel. And that is simply an unprecedented situation anywhere else in the developed world. Is this because Israel has traditionally been somewhat of an island? We don't exactly have great relations with their neighbors? Or how did this develop? So it's it's popular uh, to say that we are an island economy and that we're a small country and there's just this you know this is the way it is you know it's this this is our fate uh is to pay exorbitant prices at the grocery store but if you compare us to other uh island economies like for example New Zealand right which oh, is an island which is an island it's an actual island yes and uh, and which has a population even smaller uh than our own you'll see the prices there are lower uh, even though, obviously, you know, it takes more time to ship it there. And what's even more interesting is that often Israeli companies, for example, Diplomat, which is one of the major importer of food, goods, and toiletries, uh, they import a lot of things that you would know, uh, Jacob's Coffee, Starkis Tuna, okay, all of the uh, products of Gillette, the razors, the creams, uh, and I could go on and on and on and on. They have a very, very long list of imports. They don't operate just in Israel. They actually operate also in Cyprus, in Georgia, the country, not the state, and 
South Africa and in uh, and in New Zealand. And in each of those places, they charge less for the same goods. Their profits here in Israel are about double the profits in, for example, New Zealand. And what that tells us is even though we are an island economy, yes, we don't have as we we can't transfer goods vis-a-vis land borders. For the most part, it is getting a little bit better. We do actually buy a lot of fruits and vegetables from the Palestinian Authority, uh, but here we're talking about mostly imported goods. Uh, and so, despite that fact, despite that fact that we are, let's say, an island economy, if you compare us to another island economy like New Zealand, you'll see that we are still much more expensive, and we're even much more expensive when the company selling the products is an Israeli. Company. Okay, that's extremely irritating. I have to it say. is extremely irritating. Remember that next time you buy Starkist tuna, <laughs> which I don't buy because I'm a simple person. I only buy store brands as much as possible, but they're really expensive too. How is that? Because in the end, well, I mean, obviously, every everyone's in. You know, every company is in the is in it to make money, and that's a good thing, right? Companies should make money for themselves, for their shareholders and whatnot. But when you don't have enough competition, what basically happens is you have two or three companies in Israel in almost any uh, issue or any product that you choose. For example, let's take um, coffee, okay? There are two or three companies, Osem, Strauss, and Diplomat. Okay, Osem and Strauss are Israeli companies. Osem is actually a wholly owned subsidiary of Nestle. So it once was an Israeli company. It no longer is. Uh, Strauss, Strauss Elite uh, is an Israeli company. Diplomat, the major importer. So between the three of them, they control 90% of the coffee that you buy in the store. Okay. Now, when there's only two or three actors, and unfortunately, it's not just true of coffee. I mean, we can talk about air conditioning units. We can talk about diapers. We can talk about tampons. We can talk about almost any, you know, anything that you pull out of the basket in the in the super. And we can find that the same thing is true. We have two or three actors that control 80 to 90 percent of the market. And when there's so few people, what they can do is basically just artificially keep the prices high. Right. Why bother to lower the prices? It works well for everybody. And then what happens is, for example, let's say you go to Rami Levy or Supersal and you buy their house brand, right? What they call the Mutagaprati uh, in Hebrew. But it really, it's it's a, it's a concept that comes from the US and from Europe, right? But that house brand is pegged to be just slightly cheaper than the, the let's say, the, the, the more well-known brands, the Osem, the Diplomat or whatever. So as Osem and Diplomat raise their prices, the house brand is going to go up to, right? It's all going to go steadily up. And in fact, just yesterday, a report came out about the, the fact that Supersol, which is a, the largest Israeli uh, supermarket chain that has a monopolistic share of almost 40% of the market, re- is now raising the prices of their house brand. And why are they doing that? Because in the last two weeks, we've seen about 15 or 16 major food importers and suppliers, right? Both the manufacturers and importers raise their prices. And if, you know, once once the first one goes, you know, the rest will follow. Okay, we are going to continue to get irritated, and then we're going to talk about solutions. Correct. Let's turn to the field of banking. When I came here mm, 24 years ago, I remember talking to Banca Polim, and after I got my first report, I said to them, I noticed that you're deducting more in fees than the interest I'm getting on my account. And I was laughed at, of course, and told, that's how it is here. That's right. So yes, that is how it is here. There is no such thing. Many many people, many of our listeners might be surprised that I've read that in Israel there is no such thing as free banking. Banking costs money, even if it is just pushing a button uh, on the computer and moving, you know, your money from your your savings account to 
your checking account, that will cost you money. It, and actually, in this case, the consumer awareness has made a big, big, big difference. It's been a campaign uh, of which we at Lobby 90 may be part of and other organizations are part of to make people aware of the fact that free banking is a possibility, right? Me and you know that because we grew up in the U.S., but the average is really just, it's, it's inconceivable, right? If you've never seen it, you can't imagine it. Uh, and there's become a big campaign uh, to encourage people to call the bank and to demand free banking or they're switching. And so here, actually, the fees are slowly, slowly a little bit going down. As it, but part of the problem is that many uh, of the things that Israeli banks charge for, other banks simply don't charge for, right? I mean, there's the things you see, like, you know, the shekel and a half that you see for this transfer or the two shekels for taking out money. But that's that's small money, right? As we say, you know, is it's the small change. The big uh, money, the, the big loss to you, the uh, to you, the consumer, comes from the fact, for example, uh, you can in Israel, uh, if you are in the plus, as we say, right, if you have money in your checking account as opposed to being overdraft, you can't earn interest on that money, right? If you're an overdraft, they will charge you a lot of interest. 15, 16, 17% depends how much the overdraft is and you know what exactly you've negotiated with the bank. But let's say you have 20,000 shekels sitting there. You are the responsible, fiscally uh, conservative as a citizen and you actually have money in the bank. They they the bank, the commercial bank, right? Won't you won't earn any interest on that. Now, now why is that frustrating? Because they're using my money the whole time. Correct. Not only are they using your money to invest, they actually have an agreement with the Bank of Israel. Okay, and every night, all the money that is in all of our accounts, okay, is actually is technically placed in a savings plan, a nightly savings plan at the Bank of Israel. Okay, and the commercial banks receive interest from the Bank of Israel, as we know, the interest rates currently are very high. Okay, and they receive whatever it is, four, five, six percent interest. Okay, because they deposit. Okay, your money in the Bank of Israel overnight, right? It's a it's a 24-hour cycle, and they receive interest on that, but that interest doesn't roll over to you, i.e., you don't get any interest uh, for having money in the bank, but the bank gets interest for having your money in their bank. And that's just one example. And and we can find many, many more examples. And and the problem here, again, not to sound you know like, like a broken uh, record, is competition. You have to remember that 80% of the market in Israel is, compiled, is controlled by two parties, right? There's Ben Kapoalim and Ben Kelumi, and they control the majority of the share. Now, there's all sorts of other smaller banks that are trying to move in. Mizrahi is a very big bank. Is discount. A, a discount, right? And there's, there's Bank Yav, which deals with uh, government employees. And there's this new uh, social project bank, right, called uh, 1001. Uh, but, but in the end, you still have the same problem you have in the food market, you have a few parties, okay, who are controlling uh, your life, basically, <laughs> to put it to put it simply, who are controlling your bank account. And where there is no competition, there is no interest to consider or to try and meet the needs of the customer. It's simply not necessary, right? Because the customer is stuck. I'm also stuck with, as I said, a 2003 Honda and a 2006 Toyota, and we're trying to replace these uh, antiques. <laughs> but the prices of even secondhand vehicles are incredibly, incredibly high. And I even asked my father, how much is this car in Indiana, where he lives? And it was drastically lower. What's going on here? 
So the prices of uh, of cars in Israel are very high. It's a product of a lot of things. F- for one, we charge an exorbitant amount of tax on uh, on cars. Cars are taxed at 83% of their value, as in if the car costs 100,000 shekels, let's say, for example. In Israel, you need to pay 183,000 shekels in order to buy it because of that very high tax. Why is that a very high tax? It's it's a long historic story, but it's a big moneymaker for the government. And, and so that's one of the reasons. Another reason is, again, the lack of competition. There are four companies uh, who control the entire car import industry. And you might see uh, all different brands, right? You might, I mean, currently in Israel, uh, thankfully, the uh, the variety has increased, okay? And there are probably about 100 different car brands that are currently being imported to Israel. Israel doesn't manufacture any cars. But those 100, 100-something brands are actually being controlled by four or five companies, right? So each company controls a number of brands. And what was interesting was to see it now with the electric cars, right? Because those are new cars. That's, you know, something that we thought would shake up the market. And it's the same four or five large major companies that are also winning all of the licenses and the contracts to import electric cars, ensuring that once again, you know, electric cars, rather than being a force uh, for creating competition in the market, you know, will will be a force for uh, increasing their very, very, very respectable profits uh, in the field. And the other reason that they are expensive is because car parts in Israel are very expensive, right? I mean, you go to, uh, you know, you go to the garage and you have no idea, right? how much you're going to pay. You know, you can come in with something simple and you can leave with a bill for thousands of shekels. And you, unless you're a mechanic yourself, you really don't know why or what or this and that. And part of the reason that you don't know how much that uh, check should cost, and this is an issue that we're actually going to get into, uh, hopefully, uh, in the next few months, is because, for example, in the U.S. or in other places, there is a public, uh, let's say, directory of car parts, okay? And you can know, generally speaking, how much a car part should cost. Here in Israel, it's been blocked by all the major car importers. And the car importers generally also own the garages and they own the leasing companies, okay? They own the whole, right, the whole food chain, so to speak. And they have ensured, they've blocked it time and time again, initiatives of the Transportation Ministry and of the Ministry of of the Treasury uh, to make a similar, uh, you know, similar kind of guide public. So, you know, when you go in and they tell you that you have to change the... Really, I don't know. I'm really bad with cars, but let's say they carburetor. See, carburetor, right? <laughs> we're going to go with carburetor. Uh, there's no way if you were, lived somewhere else, you could then type in, you know, carburetor and find out, you know, carburetor is supposed to cost, let's say, between 100 and 200 dollars. In Israel, no such thing exists, and it doesn't exist intentionally because the less you know, the easier it is to charge you more. You're listening to this podcast, so I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and 
the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. So we've talked about things that make our blood pound. Let's talk about some ways that we can solve these issues if we work together, as you said, as a unit, as a public. So let's take food to begin with. You know, you mentioned the price of diapers, actually. And my oldest son is 19. My youngest is a year and eight months. And actually, the price of diapers has not changed at all between the my firstborn and my lastborn. And that's one thing I've noted and, and thought was really strange. So it can be done. It can be done. You can actually find diapers here are more expensive than, for example, in the U.S. or in Europe. But I agree with you. the uh, The delta here is not as high as you would think. But it, but it could be lower. We could we could find uh, we could we could easily find ways of improving. In fact, it used to be uh, up until about six months ago, it used to be that the Israel had a unique standard for diapers. Okay, i.e., diapers that were produced in uh, the EU or America couldn't be imported to Israel unless they were uh, adapted to the Israeli economy or to the Israeli baby's butt for uh, you know for for specific purposes and the reason for that was that it was essentially a protectionist measure uh, the majority uh, of diapers the 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 company that created that sells huggies uh, and not only do they sell huggies they actually sell most of the supermarket brands as well they create manufacture and sell huggies and tulim are all part of the same company they're all created by Hugla, which is an Israeli company that merged with Kimberly Clark an international conglomerate uh, and they can control 60 to 70% of the market share. After that, you get Pampers, uh, which is owned by Diplomat, right? Also not incredibly interested in uh, in uh, in competition. And the only uh, independent so-called uh, company for diapers is Babysitter, which is probably what you buy, and they are actually a tad cheaper. But uh, but yes, a, up until about six months ago, a, it was nullified, that kind of unique standard. The, the work is not done. I, I would very much like to see us be able to import diapers from anywhere, you know, in the Western world. It's it's a it's a low risk item. You don't eat it, right? It doesn't go into your body. Intentionally. Not intentionally. Hopefully you do not eat it. But what we did is actually we adopted the Australian uh standard for diapers, uh, which is a step forward, but but not sufficient. It's a work in progress. Okay. But there is work that's happening. Where else are we seeing any kind of change or possibility for change? So one thing that's created a lot of change is uh, the ability to order things vis-a-vis -vis Amazon, AliExpress. I don't get percentages from any company. But the ability of Israelis uh, to order directly from abroad has, re has changed the economy. In uh, 2010, okay, there, Israelis ordered about 8 to 10 million packages. Uh, per year. By 2019, pre-corona, they were ordering between 60 and 70 million packages per year. And what they're ordering, contrary to, you know, kind of popular opinion, is not, you know, little tiki lanterns, uh, you know, for your small Tel Aviv apartment. Fruit roll-ups. Fruit roll-ups, obviously, right? You actually can't uh, order food via packages in Israel. It's illegal. Uh, you have to bring it in yourself with your own suitcase. But uh, what they're ordering for the most part is clothes, shoes, 
and toiletries, right? They're ordering basic items. And that has created what we call an economic pressure that has driven down prices here in Israel. And maybe you remember from your firstborn to now that baby clothes used to be much, much more expensive here. They really used to be astronomic. They're still expensive. There's no question. But it's gotten much better. And one of the reasons it's gotten much better is baby clothes specifically is something people plan ahead for, right? Generally speaking, you know you're going to have a baby. And you buy those clothes in advance. The same is true of costumes for Purim. The same is true, for example, of electronic toothbrushes, right? And all those things have become cheaper, right? A costume used to call, average kitty costume used to cost about 200 shekels. Today, it costs 50 shekels. It's the same costume. Same thing for the electronic toothbrushes. Where we haven't seen that that kind of that economic pressure to push down prices is things that people don't plan ahead. Deodorants, razors, soap, right? You don't think, in the you know, I'm going to need in two months a package of deodorant. Let me order it now. You just run out of deodorant and you drive to the mall, right, or to the, you know, the local supermarket and you buy it. And therefore, we see a real differentiation. So that's one of the things that has, you know, helped solve uh, the issues. Another uh, issue that we've pushed through is a very large import reform that's uh, now now finally come into effect. It started uh, in June of last year, and the last section of it has now uh, become into effect uh, just actually just a few months ago in the 1st of April. And what it does is lessen the requirement to have all these unique standards. Like we talked about the diapers, right? So that was true of hundreds, about 700, 800 items from rice and oil and car seats, tampons, condoms. I mean, it was glasses, bicycles, you name it. We had a unique Israeli standard for it. And those have slowly, agonizingly be cut away. And we have adapted the Israeli standard to the generally speaking, the European standard. And hopefully, hopefully, we know that that has lessened the cost, what it costs the importers to bring the goods here. It hasn't yet rolled over uh, to the customer, but I am, you know, we're still in, we're still in the infancy. I, I am hopeful uh, that, that that will uh, indeed, you know, lower the cost uh, of things that we buy here. Uh, and the last problem is, as we said, we said, is competition. You know, in the end, you can, you know, streamline regulation, but... And, you know, the amount of things you're going to be able to order from Amazon, you know, in the under $75 cap, you know, and bring it here in a little box is, is limited, right? And, and even if we create, even if we become the most regulation-friendly, right, uh, economy in the world, it, prices still aren't going to drop unless uh, there's more competition, Right, because there simply won't be an interest. In fact, it's it's one of the kind of the the, the known secrets uh, of the uh, of the manufacturing world is that they have what's called the Israeli premium. Israelis make relatively high salaries relative to the developed world. We have a very high birth rate, and we're very good consumers. As in, we consume a lot. So basically, we're consumers who create more consumers. In uh, that's phenomenal, right? If you're manufacturing basic goods and those companies, for example, Procter & Gamble, okay, or Palmolive Colgate, okay, who make most of the things we buy in a supermarket, they know that Israelis are used to paying more money. And so they, from the get-go, even before it gets to the Israeli importer, okay, they already price the goods to the Israeli market at a higher price. And how do we know they price them at a higher price? Because when they sign uh, manufacturing or distribution agreements, more accurately, with other 
countries in this area, for example, you know, with their Polish supplier, right? Part of that contract says you may not sell to Israel, right? Because they don't want you could, it's the same, right? Obviously, it's the same thing. It's the same deodorant. It's the same, you know, Gillette uh, razor, right? It's the same Colgate toothpaste. That's exactly, I mean, exactly the same item. It came out of the same, same, same manufacturing plant with the same safety standards, right? But it's being sold for a dollar in Eastern Europe, and it's being sold for four dollars here in Israel, right? And what do they say? They say to the to the let's say the Polish supplier, the Eastern European supplier, if you sell your extras, right? I mean, because. Right. Generally speaking, you don't you don't sell all of it, right? Let's say you're left with I don't know what a cargo container of toothpaste. Toothpaste can last a long time, okay? Especially if you keep it in an air conditioned room. And they say to them you are not allowed to sell it to the Israeli market because the Israelis they like they like the golden goose, right? They pay so much and they buy so much, and we don't want anyone to ruin this party. And if you sell to the Israelis, then we will stop selling to you. Just to make this very clear. Right, and so that's one of the many reforms. Now, for example, now that sort of uh, activity is illegal in Europe. Right, the EU decided when all those countries came together that if, they, for example, there's right, there's differential costs within Europe. Right, obviously you can charge more for that same tube of toothpaste in Paris than you can charge in Warsaw. For example, Warsaw is actually a really good economy. Not a good example, but uh, in other uh, Eastern European economy. But what the EU said to, you know, for example, in this case, an American manufacturer, Procter and Gamble, or to other international companies, that if you sell to Europe, you have to sell. You know, I'm saying you have to. You cannot tell your European distributors that they are not allowed to sell outside of their state. I.e., you can you can sell your Colgate toothpaste, right, for $2 in Paris and for $1 in Poland. But you can't tell your Polish distributor that he's not allowed to take his surplus supplies and bring them to Paris and sell them there for $1.50, okay? That's not the way it works. We as the Europeans are a block, okay? It's called geo-blocking, and we are a block, and you have to sell, do you know what I'm saying? You can't intervene within the internal commerce of our block. And uh, we in Israel are trying very much, uh, it's one of the initiatives that the lobby is spearheading, that essentially we join the, not the European Union, that that is not going to happen, but that we join the EU geoblock, i.e. we say to companies, if you want to operate in Israel, you cannot include a stipulation in you know, the when the contracts that you have with distributors in, you know, adjacent areas, be it North Africa or, you know, Europe or in you know, the Mediterranean basin, that's more or less within the area. And you can't tell them that they can't sell to Israel, because if you do that, you can't operate here. We're done. We're tired of being suckers. We're tired of the fact that you charge us 20, 30 percent more because you can. Uh, and so, yes, there. I think if if there's nothing else that our readers remember from uh, this podcast, it's that we can affect the cost of living. It is a eminently solvable problem. There are many problems, specifically in Israel, that are at least, to my knowledge, unsolvable. But this is a solvable one. There are specific applicable policy changes that can be made, that have been made, that have been done in other countries, right? We don't need to reinvent the wheel. And that could, in the long term, and even in the not so long term, in you know, in the in the two, three year range, they could drastically lower uh, the amount of money we have to pay the supermarket and, and in general, every week, every month. So exciting. We're already part of the Eurovision, so I don't see this as being a problem. Obviously, exactly. But same, same. I want to ask you before we close, uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich have come up with their own plan on uh, creating 
more equitable, shall we say, cost of living. What do you think of this plan? First of all, tell us a little bit about the plan and then what you think of it. I actually haven't seen too many details. I have to say that it's I'm, I have you know, and 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 the devil is in the details, as they say. There was a very comprehensive plan that was supposed to be part of the budget law, uh, and and what it said was basically they would start breaking up these big import monopolies like Diplomat, like Shastovitz, is and they said and and we would stipulate that these companies they had to choose. They could either work with one really large company like. Diplomat works with Procter and Gamble and all these little small companies, but they can't work with also the small, also the medium, also the large. Right? You can't. You can't control the whole supermarket, and uh, and that was. A ref- it's a very. It's a drastic reform. It, you know, it, it is intervention uh, in the free market, which is something, I you know, I'm always hesitant about. I think most people are. Uh, but here, you know, there was precedence. A similar reform had happened uh, in the banking sector when uh, the credit card companies and the banks were separated. Remember, the credit card company used to be owned by the bank and the bank both controlled your bank account and your credit card. So today they're separated and that has increased competition. Uh, and you can find other examples of kind of similar, uh, you know, active attempts to create uh, to create competition by, you know, deconstructing uh, the concentrated elements uh, of the economy. Uh, and it was actually written, it was in the bill. And at some point between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m., it disappeared uh, on the night that, uh, that the budget was being debated in the cabinet, in the government. It went in uh, it was part of the, you know, it's, it's a big document, it's like 150 pages, almost 200 pages. Uh, and this particular paragraph was in at the beginning of the night. And by morning, uh, when they declared that the budget had been voted on about 9, 10 o'clock, it was gone. Uh, and in lieu of that reform, there was a commitment to create a committee, which is indeed what was created and what the Prime Minister spoke about. And that committee will study uh, the situation uh, and will give its uh, recommendations by the 1st of December. And I understand, you know, we don't want to, you don't want to be too hasty, especially when you are, you know, making big reforms. But this is going to be the fourth or fifth committee since the major cost of living protests in 2011. And it begs the question, if this is indeed an attempt to push off a major reform in order to think about it more deeply, or if it's simply an attempt to push off a major reform because it's inconvenient. Time will tell. We will tell. Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. A veteran immigrant to Israel asks a new immigrant, Hey, you know how to make a small fortune in Israel? New how? asks the newbie. Come with a large fortune. The kernel of truth in this punny wisecrack is as insidious as uh, a pebble in your shoe. A shoe which, according to our guest this week, Rachel Gour, was likely imported through Amazon due to the insane prices here. This podcast was recorded in Jerusalem's Nomi Studios and produced and edited by The Podwaves. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Until next week, Shalom. Shalom.